At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our series Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World, we're coming face-to-face with the division that seems to define the culture of our nation, our communities, and even our churches. Join us as we turn to 1 Corinthians to discover the unifying power of a people who follow Christ. Uh, Have you ever had an argument with someone where at some point in the argument you realize that what you were arguing about wasn't the real problem. Don't nudge your spouse right now, that'd be rude. <laughs> but, but you've probably been there, maybe, maybe with a spouse, maybe with a friend, where you're like having a disagreement and then at some point it dawns on you like, I don't, I don't think this is the real issue. I think like there's something underneath this that probably we need to actually deal with and discuss. And usually it's not until you actually get down into that place that, that you can really begin, in some sense, to actually start to, to deal with the conflict or the disagreement or whatever issue you, you have. Oftentimes, in order to find unity in places where there's conflict or division, you, you've got to unearth the real problem. Paul's been dealing with a church that's in a place of division and strife. He uses the term quarreling. They're kind of at each other's throats. There's tension within this church. And oftentimes it it can be easy when we look at what Paul comes to say and write to the Corinthians to think that the the root of their problem is on the surface just their kind of celebrity culture that they buy into or the kind of surface conflicts that happens in, in any sort of community. But Paul knows that as he encourages that church and in many ways gives a template for any church or any community of people finding itself in conflict, that if he's really going to help them move to a greater place of unity, he's got to dig underneath the surface. He's, he's got to get to the real heart of the problem. And for Paul, the heart of the problem in the Corinthian church is that they've adopted certain values and wisdom as part of their community that are actually in contrast to the gospel, and that if they're actually to experience unity in Christ, which is what this letter is about and what we've been seeking to understand, how we live as a people united in a fractured and dividing world, he knows that he's got to kind of draw them underneath the surface and say, hey, here's the core issue of what you need to begin to turn from in order to find what God has designed you for. Remember, Paul begins this letter to the church in Corinth by reminding them of the high calling of God's church, that we're called to be a holy people set apart for God, and that we're called to be a unified people together in Jesus. Paul reminds them from the very beginning that God has provided through Christ the resources necessary for his church to be those sort of people, a holy and unified entity. And last week, Paul begins to deal with or acknowledge the main issue and problem that was happening in the church in Corinth, that they had begun to divide by essentially taking sides and highlighting celebrity pastors as kind of the key people they follow. Paul notes that they were kind of in this place where some were saying, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos, I follow Peter, I follow Christ. And Paul kind of calls that out and says, no, 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 don't don't do that. Don't, Don't follow people. Don't divide that way. At the, end of the day, at the end of last week, we saw Paul comes and says, instead, be a people of the gospel. That's where your unity is going to be found. That's where you're going to experience what's necessary to be the sort of community that God has ultimately called you to be. 
But as Paul calls them back to the gospel, he also then begins to deal with the real issue that's plaguing the church in Corinth. That they've brought values and ideas from their culture along with the gospel, and it's causing them to fracture. Look with me, if you have your Bible, to, to 1 Corinthians 1. Actually, we're going to start first at verse 17, because I want to see the pickup that kind of leads into the passage that we're going to look to this morning. Paul says this, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. We saw this last week. Paul essentially says, listen, the, the, the Christian faith, it's not about me. I didn't come to make this about me. This is about Jesus. And so God didn't come to, to baptize you in my name or for you to follow me. What he sent me to do was ultimately to preach the gospel. But Paul knows as they hear that, that there's a problem in the church. And so he goes on to address that problem in the next half of the verse. He says, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul essentially says, I came and I preached the gospel, but I didn't preach it with eloquent rhetoric or sophisticated philosophical reasoning. Remember, in the church in Corinth, they were saturated in Greek culture, and Greek culture prized sophisticated philosophical reasoning. They were inundated with sophists and Epicureans, if you go back to your ancient history classes, right? But they, they prized those values. And so for them to come, for someone to be able to present a sophisticated philosophical worldview and to do that with eloquent speech, that was like the highest thing for that culture. Those were, those were like the top of the top. And Paul essentially comes and says, like, I didn't, I didn't do that. Why? Because I didn't want the gospel to be emptied of its power. Here's Paul's translation. He didn't want them to think that the gospel was just another form of their cultural wisdom. He essentially says, I, I didn't come to you on the terms of what you prized because I didn't want you to see what I was bringing as just another worldview alongside all the things that you guys prize so much. Paul knows this is counterintuitive to the Corinthians. They, they had drawn lines according to this, their cultural values. They had said, I'm a Paul because Paul, man, that guy gets it. He, he understands. He's wise. He puts the, 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 the pieces together. Others were coming along and they're like, no, 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 Apollos. Have you heard that guy preach? You want to talk about eloquent wisdom, right? They had adopted those cultural values. And Paul essentially comes along and he says, hey, that's causing disunity among you. I didn't come to fall in line with what you value as a culture. I came to help you see something greater, something beyond the wisdom that you prize. So Paul comes and essentially says, you prize wisdom so much, you, you prize philosophy so much, you love the eloquent speaker, but what does that mean? What does that actually affect, does that have on your community? And so he then moves into verse 18 to unpack why he didn't come to bring a word of eloquent wisdom. This is what he says, look, in verse 18 with me. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So notice how Paul continues his train of thought here. I didn't come with words of eloquent wisdom. I didn't come in your cultural narrative. I came to bring a different word, a different message, the message of the cross. 
From the beginning, he's drawing a comparison between the wisdom that they see it and the wisdom that God ultimately provides through Jesus. And in many ways, Paul is going to force them to ask the question, where does your wisdom come from? Where do you get or center yourself in how you understand and navigate the world? Is it from your culture or is it from Christ? Because Paul essentially is going to come to say, I came to bring you Jesus. And when it comes to Jesus, the world sees Jesus as utter foolishness. That's why he says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. First, I think it's helpful for us to understand what Paul means when he says the word of the cross. When Paul references that, he's using the cross as the centering point of the gospel. The the fancy term, because I love fancy terms, just bear with me, is it's a synecdoche. A synecdoche is when you take one concept to speak for the whole. Paul uses the cross to speak of the totality of the work of Jesus, right? That's the idea. You, You see this lined up in the gospel, that the good news of Jesus is that Jesus came, sent by God as his son. He was the Messiah who lived the life, that the perfect life before God, and ultimately died on a cross for our sins, that he then rose again three days later from the dead, ascended to heaven, and one day will return to fully establish God's kingdoms forever. We we just confess that in the the classic Apostles' Creed, which is the confession of all Christian churches, which reminds us of the work of Christ. Paul centers the reality of Jesus' work on the cross. So when he says the word of cross, he's realizing that, but he's putting it at the center point because he knows it's the word of the cross that actually is the dividing point for humanity. And Paul essentially says, when it comes to the cross, there's two types of people. There's those that are perishing, and there are those that are being saved. That's how Paul sees the world. Essentially, his idea is, when it comes to who we are as human beings, because of our sin, this is the narrative of Scripture, because from the very beginning, humanity has turned from God. God promised that when we disobeyed, the consequence for our sin would be death. Not just physical death, eternal death, where we're ultimately cut off from God as the source of life for all eternity. All of humanity, because of their sin, is on that road. They're moving to a place where one day, when Jesus will return, God will establish his kingdom. He will remove sin from the earth. And he will remove those who are in sin ultimately from him forever. And Paul's thing is, for those that are in that camp, when it comes to the message of Jesus, that seems like utter foolishness to them. It it makes no sense. But his contrast is, to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so there are those who have trusted in Christ... And when it comes to the cross, they see that as the very power of God. Paul includes himself in this group, to us who are being saved. And he puts that verb, being saved, in the present tense. It's, it's people who are in the process of experiencing the salvation of God. One of the things we see throughout Scripture is that when we speak of salvation, we can really speak of salvation in three tenses. There's the fact that we have been saved, the past tense, saved from the penalty of sin. We're in the process of being saved from the power of sin. And then one day, our hope is, when Jesus returns, we'll be saved forever from the presence of sin. 
I heard somebody, or I read somebody explain it this way this week. I thought it was really helpful. They said, uh, th- you could think of salvation like this. Think, think of it in one sense. If you were on a sinking ship headed towards drowning and somebody pulled up alongside you in a boat and rescued you. In one sense, if you were in that case, you could say you had been saved because you're in the boat. You're no longer in the sinking ship. But in a sense, you're also being saved because that boat is traveling towards shore. But then your hope is one day you will be fully saved when you're finally restored back to land. That's essentially what Paul's saying. There are those of us who have trusted in Christ, who we've been saved from the penalty, and we're in that process now of God sanctifying us and saving us and bringing us into his eternal kingdom. And what Paul says is, to those who are being saved, the cross or the word of the cross is, now note the word he says here, is what? The power of God. Now that's an interesting contrast. You would expect that if the word of the cross is foolishness to those perishing, that Paul's contrast would be to say, well, then it's wisdom to those who are being saved. But that's not what he says. He says it's the power. You see, Paul, again, is trying to contrast to them the real issue at the heart. What he wants them to say is, listen, the gospel is not just another competing philosophy alongside all your other philosophies. Right? And that's what they love to do in Greek culture. They would gather in the center of the city, sophisticated, eloquent speakers would get up and they would present their rational argument for their worldview and the way the world was aligned and all the pieces, parts, and connections. And Paul does not want the Corinthian community to think, oh, the gospel's just one of those things. It's just one of those worldviews that kind of comes along. And so what he says is, the gospel isn't just another form of wisdom, it's actually power. It actually does something. It has the ability in the message of the gospel to save you, to effectively rescue you from the place of death and bring you into the place of life. This contrast between wisdom and rhetoric and power for salvation is going to be key for Paul. And what he wants the Corinthians ultimately to see is that the wisdom and power that they're seeking is not found in their culture. It's found in the message of Christ crucified. So Paul's going to go on to say, well, why is this the case? Why is it that to some, the message is utter foolishness, but to others, it's power itself for salvation? Well, Paul's going to give first his reasons for why it's seen as utter foolishness. Look at verse 19. He's going to say, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. The first thing that Paul wants us, them to recognize is part of the reason that the gospel is seen as foolishness by those who are perishing is because God promised that that would be the case. Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 29, verse 14, where God has essentially said, I'm going to do something in one way where I will destroy the very wisdom of human beings. I'm going to thwart it. I'm going to nullify it. I'm going to make it nothing. I'm going to help you see that it's utterly worthless to deal with the plight of our human problem of sin. And so in one sense, Paul's trying to say the cross, what God is doing through the cross is doing what God said he would do all along. It's nullifying the ways in which humanity tries to come to God on their own terms. You see, that's what humans always try to do. 
Human wisdom seeks to come to God on its own, on our own terms. It places us at the center of our world. And then in our self-centeredness, we begin to define the terms in which we will relate to God. That's what human wisdom always seeks to do. Whether it's religion, philosophy, spirituality, what Paul wants to see is that anything apart from Christ seeks to essentially reason itself into salvation. And so what Paul essentially says is, that doesn't work. God essentially has made that no, because that's not actually how salvation is achieved or how it comes. So he says God promised that he was going to do something to remove the wisdom of humanity. You see, all of us long for salvation. We do. We look around the world and we see the brokenness of the world. And and whatever label that we put on it, utopia, nirvana, whatever it is, Right? We, we have these ideas of this is how the world should be, and we've got to figure out a way to get there. We all desire a world of righteousness and justice, of equality and provision for all. We know we're not there, and we long for some sort of salvation for that to be the case for the world. Not only that, all of us long for salvation. Who hasn't at some point wrestled with the darkest parts of their own life? Who've seen within themselves the brokenness and reality that I am not who I am created to be, and I do not live the way I desire ultimately to live. And our hearts, whether we look at the outside or whether we look inside, all cry for salvation. The question is, what is actually going to get us to that place? What is going to deal with the problems that we face internally and externally and allow us to experience human flourishing? Well, Paul's going to say, it's not going to come through human wisdom. Because God's completely nullified that. Because at the end of the day, human wisdom doesn't deal with our core problem, which is our sin. Our rebellion and turning from God. And Paul goes on in verse 20 then to essentially emphasize that point. Look what he says. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Paul is, again, challenging the Corinthians and the cultural values that they had adopted into the church. And he essentially goes, where's the wise one? We we talk about wisdom here. Again, we're talking about the idea of public philosophy. People who argued a certain worldview that seeks to make sense of the world and order it accordingly. So that way, if their principles were followed, the world would operate in the way that it was ultimately meant to. In Paul's day, these were... There were various competing ideas or philosophies for how this worked, from the Epicureans to the Stoics to the Sophists to the Platonists. All of them, in the end, sought salvation through human wisdom and philosophical reasoning. But for Paul, they all have the same problem, which he identified in the verse before. They all seek to come to God on their own terms. That's what all human reasoning does. So in our day, it's not necessarily Epicureans or Stoics, although we have roots back into those philosophies. 
but it might be secular humanism or atheism or capitalism or communism or you name the ism. All of them are human reasonings that seek to set the world up in certain terms defined by us. And then if we follow those principles, we'll experience the utopia that we're all longing for. And Paul essentially says, okay, that's great, but, but where is that wisdom? What, what does it lead to? For all our human wisdom, all our, connective, all our collective knowledge, all the access we have to technology and human reasoning, have we really dealt with the core issues that plague humanity? Has that really changed or dealt with the sin problem that exists in our heart that causes all sorts of problems around us? No. Despite all our knowledge, the world remains broken and so do we. So Paul says, where's the wise man? Okay, well, maybe it's not human reasoning. Maybe, maybe it's not philosophy. Maybe what we really need is just more religion. Well, Paul goes on to say, where's the scribe? That term that Paul uses for scribe is a technical term. It's a, someone who is an expert in Jewish law. They would have been rooted in and often used synonymously with the, the rabbis in the Jewish faith. And Paul essentially says, well, where are the experts? And do they have the answer? Do they have the wisdom necessary for salvation to, to find the power that we ultimately need? Well, Paul's rhetorical question is, no. They follow the same pattern. That religion in and of itself seeks to achieve salvation through human work and effort and achievement. They seek to find the eternal life we desire ultimately by our earning or achievement of it. All religions, apart from Christ, can be boiled down into the same idea. It's what I do for God. So whether it's the five pillars of Islam or the eightfold path of Buddhism or Hinduism or you name the religion, at its core, it comes back to the same issue. It seeks to come to God on the terms that we set. So if I do this, if I follow diligently, if I study and follow these practices, then I'll earn some aspect of being saved, whatever that salvation and image is. But at the end of the day, they're still the same thing. It's the idea that we earn our way to God. And it's about what we do for God instead of about what God has done for us. But Paul's point is when, when religion is the mark, you'll think the cross is foolish because the cross is a message about what God did, not what you do for God. But that seems counterintuitive to the religious zealot. And so for Paul, it's again, it's powerless. Finally, he says, where's the debater of the age? So in their day, they would look for those charismatic leaders who were eloquent and sweet, persuasive, they could rally the troops, present their worldview, get them together. The orator in Paul's day was the one gifted in rhetoric and persuasive reasoning. And again, this is something the Corinthian church and culture prized greatly. But what Paul wants to essentially say is, hey, their message might sound good, but it's empty. It's of this age. It's perishing along with all the rest of the world. It can't save you. It doesn't have what you actually need. And so whether it's Tony Robbins or Richard Dawkins, you name the public figure where there's persuasive arguing and charismatic personality, but at the end of the day, they all have the same problem. They can't save you from your sin. And that's Paul's point. If sin is the problem, 
None of this can actually do anything about it. That's why he goes on to make his concluding statement. Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Corinthians, can't you see? You're not going to find what God has created you for through your terms, your values, your culture. God's made that stuff foolish. It doesn't work. In Paul's language, it's powerless to do anything. And so Paul's point is, reject that. Reject the wise foolishness of the world. Don't buy into that. Because it will not lead you or provide for you what you actually need. Maybe you can think of it like this. All right? um, go back to the illustration I used earlier of, uh, of being on a sinking ship. So imagine you're on a sinking ship. Uh, let's just imagine for a moment it's a fairly large ship. There's a decent group of people on there. You hit something, it cracks the hole. The ship's sinking, but it's kind of slow. It's, it's not super noticeable at first, okay? But at some point, somebody comes and says, hey, the ship's going down. We got to do something about it. Paul would say, to use Paul's language, the philosopher comes along, and they would say, okay, well, what we need to do to fix this problem is we just need to pull together, come up with a good plan, figure it out. We have the ability to fix this problem on our own. So, so let's... let's Pull our resources, let's pull our reasoning, let's line things up, we'll fix the ship, we'll be fine. All right, the, the religious person comes along and says, well, the ship might be sinking, but we have the power to make it to shore. So grab the rose, let's figure it out, get in line, everybody listen, do your thing, we'll be okay. The charismatic leader comes on and says, like, hey, don't worry, I know the ship's sinking, but just follow me, I got this figured out. And Paul's point is, so imagine you're in that scenario, and a boat comes up alongside the ship that you're in. And the guy says, hey, I noticed your ship sinking. You, hop in. I'll save you. We'll get you to shore. Well, if you've bought into one of those ideas, what's your response going to be? Well, I don't, need, I don't need saving. We got this figured out, right? If you're with the philosopher, you're like, we've got what we need. We'll just fix the boat. If you're with the other guy, you're like, hey, we'll just row to shore. I'm I'm good. Or if you're following the leader, that cares, but you reject her. So suddenly the power for salvation is available to you, but you reject it because you've bought into a vision of something else. And so that just seems like foolishness. Well, I'm not going to do that. And so that's Paul's whole point. The Corinthian church had bought into their cultural values, and because of that, they were starting to divide. And Paul knew the core issue to deal with their disunity is not just, hey, everybody, get along. Hey, stop fighting. The core issue was to get to where they were, what they were actually trusting in and prizing. Because until they rejected their cultural values, they wouldn't begin to unify in their faith in Jesus. And so his whole point is reject the wise foolishness of the world. Do not let the cultural values of the world be the things that define the way that you pursue your faith in Christ. If we're to receive God's wisdom and power, we have to turn from the foolish promises of the world. We have to see them for what they are. If you're here this morning and you're exploring Christianity, you're looking, maybe somebody invited you, maybe you're checking us out, maybe you're watching us online, Paul would come along and he would say, I want to encourage you, truly consider the worldview you've adopted or what you're wrestling with and ask yourself this question, not does it make sense I'm not saying don't make it illogical. But ask yourself this question. Does it actually have the power to do anything?
does it have the power? That's Paul's point. If you're in a place of sin, then you need a power outside of yourself. You need rescuing. And Paul's point is, all the man-made religion, all the man-made philosophy, all the human power and intellect in the world can't deal with that problem. It's foolishness. And so the question of power becomes an interesting one. I, I was listening, um, I, I was reminded of this recently. I, I was listening to a podcast a, a couple weeks ago by a couple guys um, that um, were sharing their stories of kind of their deconstruction and deconversion from Christianity. So there were two guys that had grown up in Christian homes, served in, uh, I think one of them served at a church for a while and um, had become kind of popular um, podcasts. And, and, and I, I was curious in the subject. I've been curious in the subject. There's been a lot of conversations around deconstruction. And I wanted to give them a fair hearing. I, I just wanted to, hey, okay, what did they go through? What does this mean? I, I didn't want to go in with preconceived judgmentalism or, or somehow to just bash or pick apart their argument. I, I genuinely just wanted to hear Okay, what was this journey? Why? What, why are people wrestling and struggling with this? And so they, they kind of shared their journey of struggling with their faith and deconstructing it. And, and eventually, um, you know, they both had come to the kind of the same place. They, they, had, they had essentially said, I turned from Christianity. I just adopted an agnostic worldview. Like, I just don't know. So I'm just going to kind of live open-handed, and I'm just going to kind of embrace what comes, you know, and, and just kind of see where that, that leads me. And, and, and what was interesting was when I, when I was listening to it, and I, I can't help having these ideas in the back of my head, I, I got really sad for a minute. Not, not in a way of like, like I wanted to, to bash these guys, but, but what made me really sad for a moment was I was like, I, I think they've misdiagnosed the problem. Like as I was listening to them, I think like th they kind of said this in some ways. Like their whole idea or philosophy was like, well, we're okay. The, the world's not that bad a place. And like, if there is a God, like, oh, well, what's the big, kind of what's the big deal? We'll just live life. And I was like, I mean, okay, but from a, from a biblical perspective, like, we're looking and saying like, we actually have a problem. <laughs> like, we, sin is the problem. It's plaguing humanity and it's causing those who are apart from Christ to be headed towards an eternal death. And, and if that's the problem... Like, you need saving. You need power. You need something to come and rescue you from that. And Paul's point is, like, the world doesn't have that for you. All of that we have, it cannot deal with that core problem. So don't adopt it. Don't adopt it. And that's, again, I'd say, if you're wrestling with Christianity, ask your question, what's the power to deal with the problem of sin? Now, if you say, oh, sin's not a problem, well, let's have a different conversation. Because when I look at the world, it sure looks like a problem to me. And when I look at my own heart, it sure seems like a problem to me. And so Paul says, don't buy into that philosophy. And, and even if you are a Christian, what Paul's caution is to the church is to say, be careful of adopting that wisdom into your culture. Be careful of marking your Christianity by what the world values. Don't do it. It's dangerous. It robs the cross of its power. You want the clearest example in my mind, in our world? The clearest example, what Paul, I think, would say of rejecting the wise foolishness in our world, what he would say, turn from the prosperity gospel of America. In our culture, well, we might not 
prize philosophical reasoning, but you know what we do prize? Economic prosperity. That's the American dream, right? That's what everyone's here and after. And what subtly happened in the church in the West is we've taken those values and we've started to tie the message of Christianity to that. Man, you follow Jesus, you'll be blessed. Your life will go well. Things will be easy. Sow that seed. You'll make money. God will give in return. And suddenly, the cross isn't about the power of salvation for your sin. The cross is a means by which you get blessed and enriched. Paul would say, that's foolish. You start to follow that message, you're going to have some problems, not only in your faith, but in your community. And so he's trying to labor, and I'm trying to labor a little bit, because at some point, we have to recognize we are prone in our hearts to bring our cultural values and to tie that to the cross. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. That's foolish. It doesn't have what you're actually looking for. So he continues. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Paul reminds Adam that in God's wisdom, the world was not going to be able to come to him on his own terms. And so it pleased him to essentially show that as fruitless and instead to save, to bring his salvation through a message that seems foolish to the world. So that the world would turn from trusting in itself and instead trust in Christ, trust in God and the work that he does. And again, he goes right at their cultural values. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Those are the two major makeup people groups within the church in Corinth. Jewish Christians and Greek Christians. And they had certain cultural values that they prized in that day. The Jews prized the miraculous. They prized signs. They constantly were asking Jesus to display signs to them because they believed when the Messiah came, he would show himself through power and miracles, like the prophets of old, like Elijah and Elisha, that there would be miracles and work that would come and establish God's kingdom and power. And so the Jews believed when the Messiah comes, we'll look for those miracles and signs and the power of God's kingdom that will come, we'll deal with our enemies and reestablish God's people. So that's what they define their Christianity by. So they follow Jesus, but then they're looking for the leaders. Who, who, has, the, who has the most power? Who, who's the most miraculous? Who's the most special? We'll side with him. Greeks are completely different. They seek wisdom. They want a philosophical worldview that meets the demands of their culture and their high academic standards and philosophical reasoning. They want God to bring the message and work of his Messiah in a way that they can argue and reason against the culture of their day. But what does Paul say? We preach Christ crucified. I love one translation of this. You could say it another way, but we preach a crucified Messiah. Right? That term Christ in the Greek is the, rooted in the Hebrew term Messiah. It means anointed one. And what Paul says is, no, 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 no. The Messiah comes, but he doesn't come in line with your cultural values. He comes contrary to them. And that's what we preach. That's why he goes on to say, but we preach crucified Christ, a stumbling block to Jews and folly 
to Gentiles. What he says is, yeah, the Jews want power, but the reality is the message of a crucified Messiah is actually so countercultural to that that it's an offense to them. That's what the idea of stumbling block means, an, an offense. Why? Well, in, in the Jewish mindset, to die on a cross was to be cursed by God. Deuteronomy says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Paul comes along, the Jews seek power. Paul comes along and says, no, 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 no. The way God is bringing salvation in the world is actually through a Messiah that died on a cross. They're like, get out of here with that Messiah. Like, it's offensive. It's anathema in their mindset that that's the way the Messiah would come. And so they're offended. So it's a stumbling block to Jews, but to the Gentiles, it's just seen as foolishness. So sometimes I think we've, we've been so removed from, from the culture of their day, and the cross has become such a symbol of Christianity that we forget the offensive nature of it. To die on a cross was reserved for criminals, insurrectionists, and enemies of the state. It was a horrendous and shameful way to die. It was reserved for, it was like when the Romans want to make a point and shame you, you're dying on a cross. It's not clean. It's messy. So for Paul to come and say, the Messiah that's going to bring salvation from God, the way he achieved that was by dying on a cross. Like, who? you want to say he's king? Only bad people die on crosses. Like, imagine, just put it in our lens for a day. Imagine if the Apostle Paul came to you and he said, hey, God's provided someone to bring salvation for the whole world. There's good news. God wants to deal with your sin, rescue you, begin to restore you back to eternal life. And the good news of how this guy achieved that, uh, the way the guy achieved that salvation is he died by lethal injection. Go ahead, Cam. That, that's how God saved the world. Be like, what, what are you talking about? Lethal, like, that's for the bad criminals. That's not for saviors and kings. That's not for presidents and people who are power and leadership. What idiocy do you have talking about that? Right? That, I mean, that's how they would have seen it. For Paul to come and say, like, Jesus saved the world by dying on a cross, the Greeks are like, a cross? Like, get out of here with that nonsense. But what does Paul say the cross is? But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, there he brings the unity, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You can switch to the next slide, Cam. Paul says, no, but the cross, to, to those who God actually calls, who he calls into the boat, who get off the ship, who rescue, they see the cross and recognize it as, no, 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 that's not just another worldview. That's not just another philosophy. Like, that is power for my life that rescues me from my sin because that's how I'm united to Jesus. That's how he deals with my problem. And so what he says is, the thing about the cross, yeah, they see it as foolishness, but to those that God is in the process of saving, the cross is our hope. The cross is our centering point. The cross is all that we're about. The problem is the cross will always be countercultural to the world. That's why he goes on to say, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul isn't 
using this language to give comparison of degree. He's not saying, oh, there's human wisdom's great. God's just wiser. Human strength is great. God's just stronger. Humans are ingenuitive, and we can do incredible things. God can just do that a little bit better. What he's trying to remind them is, listen, God is so great. He's so massive. His work of salvation is so incredible that even his foolishness, which he's not a fool, and his weakness, which he's not weak, are incomparable to the best of us. So what are you going to put your hope in? You're going to put your hope in the wisdom of man? Or are you going to trust in the power of God? And Paul wants to look at the church in Corinth, and he wants to look at the church today, and he wants to say, don't follow the patterns of the world. They're powerless. They can't deal with the problem that you have. Those moments of guilt in your heart where you recognize the wrong that you've done, and you know if you had to stand before a holy God that you couldn't stand clean, Paul says the cross deals with that. It proclaims forgiveness over the sin that we've committed. The moments where we feel like we look at our world and we're like, man, it's out of control. I think there's maybe even be a power beyond us that just seems to hold the world in bondage. Paul says that the Lord put to open shame on the cross the forces that keep this world in bondage. And time and again, what Paul wants to see is the cross isn't just a nice idea. It's actually the power you need. But the only way we can receive it is by actually embracing it and turning from our adoption of the cultural values around us. And so at the end of the day, what Paul wants to remind the church and what he's going to spend the next couple paragraphs reminding them is trust in the power of the cross. Stop trusting in your, your culture. Stop trusting in the celebrity that you put up. Stop trusting in your philosophical reasoning. Trust in the cross. It is our hope. So, close with this question. When it comes to your life, do you trust the wisdom of God as seen in the cross? Or do you trust the wisdom of yourself. You can't do both. I remember when I was uh, learning to play the guitar, and I'm an amateur guitarist at best, but for about six weeks I took lessons. And my guitar teacher, um, he was trying to teach me uh, the way that you pick on the guitar. And so what he was telling me was the, the best way to pick on the guitar is you, you downstroke, and then the next stroke you upstroke. And so you downstroke, upstroke, downstroke, upstroke. That's how you, you pick. And, and the thing is you move along the strings continually going up and down, up and down, up and down. Well, I, I in my great wisdom, was like, well, why, if I'm playing one string down and the next string below it is down, why wouldn't I just keep downstroking? D doesn't that seem to make sense? Like, why would I go up if I'm going down? And, he, and my teacher was like, no, trust me, when you get into harder work, what you're going to need is you're going to need the ability to go back. Now, you know how I practice the guitar? Downstroke, 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 downstroke. So I start to learn to play the guitar, and I realize, oh my goodness. There, I mean, there are songs today I can't play because I did not develop a good, adequate down upstroke pattern. Because I thought I knew better. 
I thought I had it in my wisdom. <laughs> he doesn't know what he's talking about, foolish. Seems so much easier to go downstroke. The problem is that's how most people live their life. God comes along and he says, hey, tr trust me. I've got power for you in the cross. I can deal with your issue. I have wisdom. It might seem countercultural, and at times it might seem counterintuitive. But it's actually the power for the very world your heart longs for. And it's actually the power for the salvation that you need. But the only way you can receive it is if you stop thinking you know better. And that's the question Paul wants to ask. The only way we come to receive the power and the wisdom of God is by fully surrendering ourselves to Christ Jesus. To turn from our wise foolishness and thinking we know better and to accept his wisdom on our behalf. And as we do that, we receive the power of God in our lives for salvation. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.